I have noticed that one of the challenges that Christ followers face is not understanding grace for us. We are so thankful for grace, but then how do you give grace to other people? That can be a challenge. I've also noticed how we can uh, want to give truth to other people, but sometimes it's hard to receive truth ourselves. It's a lot easier to say to someone else, I don't think you see this, than anybody else to say to you, I don't think you see this. When someone else says to you, I don't think you see this, sometimes they say, yeah, you don't see the whole picture. They actually see a different picture. How we're gonna see these things together are critical in a culture that is begging you to acquiesce to its flow, to its, to its river of truth that is simply trending. In the beginning of this series, Grace and Truth Over Trending, we talked about what are the things that are trending, and here's where we're setting up camp. Here's our launch pad. Our launch pad has been what's gonna be our approach to grace and truth. How do we address doubts, not just in people outside our faith, but even people inside our faith. Many of you have struggled with doubting what God says about particular things from the credibility and reliability of the word of God to when the going gets tough and the storms brew around us and we deal with human suffering, the talk about hell, sexuality that we'll dive in today, and how do we approach these things and on what ground do we stand and will we? On what ground will we stand? And the truth in all of this is it's more than issues to be solved, more than debates to be won, and for some reason, we have taken even a political tone to our biblical debates. There's gotta be a loser and there's gotta be a winner, and we're just out there to talk about something so that we can push people in, conform them into our way of thinking versus, and debate to be won or issues to be solved versus the starting point of people to be loved no matter where we're coming from. And the truth is, every single one of us, we cannot recuse ourselves from reality. You, you, you can't. It's like impossible. You can try to ostrich the deal where, where you put the big long neck into the sand and just ignore it. You can recuse yourself like a judge who walks into the courtroom and and sees, oh, I know this person, and they say, wait, 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 I'm not gonna be able to effectively try this case. I'm not gonna effectively make a judgment call. I have to recuse myself. You can't recuse yourself from the reality of the culture wherein you live. So every one of us, whether it's silence or it's screaming, whether it's a biblical perspective or a personal opinion, you We'll choose how to respond in this culture. And here are some ways the church has responded. Here are some ways maybe you've responded. You can attack culture aggressively, and by doing that, you marginalize your voice. Just on the attack, on the attack, on the attack, okay? You, you can retreat from culture quickly. I'm not even gonna talk about this. I'm gonna get out. I'm gonna ostrich the thing. And then you lose your voice. Grace and truth in your voice, grace and truth together is medicine. And it's you're holding back the medicine to the culture. You can embrace culture so closely that you dilute your voice. It's where instead of having one foot firmly on grace and one foot firmly on truth, what we tend to do, what's easier in this culture is to try and simply put all of our feet in the grace basket hoping that someone else will deal with the truth or that God will just deal with the truth, but we're actually invited to be part of God's story as the hands and feet of Jesus to declare truth and have one foot firmly on grace while standing solidly with another foot on truth, and that is tough in our culture. I don't mean culture out here. I mean family culture, people we love, people we interact with, people that have a different view that we have traditionally held, and maybe it's been more of a parrot view because you've just always heard it said that way and you do it, but then when you come face to face with real people, real issues in your real family and it's no longer something you're reading in the news or something you're liking as you scroll through Facebook and all of a sudden the transgender conversation comes to your living room, to your dining room. Now it's a different thing than just having an opinion about whether the guy should swim with the women or swim with the men. It's a whole different thing. 
Here's what we could do. We can engage culture to transform it, not by your voice and not by my voice, but by elevating his voice. Jesus, the beautiful name above every name and the voice of Jesus over any other voice. Can I make a suggestion? Let's do that one. <laughs> like, let's do that one. And so in this series, we've covered suffering and reliability of the Bible. We're gonna be talking in a couple weeks about not just the reality of hell, but the importance of hell. What? Oh, hell no. Yeah, hell yes. <laughs> that wasn't in the notes. That, I don't know if that'll make it in 11.15 or not. Uh, today, we're gonna unpack biblical sexuality. Um, here's what's trending. Much of the Bible's teaching is sexually repressive. It shouldn't be the final authority for today's modern progressing world. One of the top values in our culture these days is progression. Let's progress, let's make progress, let's make progress, let's make progress, let's have progression. And anything that would speak to slowing down our progress, we think is anti-cultural and actually anti-helpful. But I want you to know that sometimes progression moving in a certain direction, if it goes against God's direction, it leads to destruction. And so the truth is, how do we slow down fast enough in a high-paced, high-speed culture to just have a conversation about biblical sexuality? And when I say a conversation, some of you, no, no raise of hands, like, you, rhetorically, like, you never, you, you never had a conversation about sex with your family or, or your parents. Like, growing up, you never talked about sex. You, you may have had, you may have had the conversation that my dad had with his dad. And the conversation that my dad had with sex, about sex with his dad about sex was out on the ranch. They owned cows and horses and they were sitting by a fence one day and had a foot on the fence and they were talking and a male horse mounted a female horse and my grandpa simply said to my dad, son, you have any questions? <laughs> and that was it. And my dad said, I don't think so. He said, good, <laughs> good. Now, some of you may have grown up a little different than that. You may have grown up, grown up like me where, where anytime my dad said, hey, son, uh, mom's cooking dinner. Let's go. Get, we forgot to get dinner rolls. Let's go to the store and get dinner rolls. I knew, oh, crap, this is going to be a conversation about sex. We'd get in the car. He'd say, I'd like to talk to you about masturbation, son. Seriously? I'm like, dad, shut up. I just want you to feel the awkwardness in them. I just, what's he gonna say next? And when it comes to such a intrinsic piece of every one of our lives, listen, teenagers, your parents had sex. In order for you to be here, like both of my kids when we first had the sex talk, both of them said, because Graham and Sage were both, uh, they were younger. We started young having the conversation about sex because culture's having the conversation younger and younger. Uh, they said, you and mom did that two times? <laughs> this week. That was years ago. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta laugh, gotta laugh to keep from crying. Um, no, we had to have the conversation. But there's so much confusion in today's culture and there's so much different directions on where to start and what's important, what's not important and who, who gets to have the final say and the final authority on what's right, what's wrong, what's indifferent, who cares, why does the church even need to be in the conversation about what I do behind closed doors? Doors. It's like the dad who said to his son as they were getting ready for a trip, he said, son, before we go, put the trunk in the trunk. Son, put the trunk in the trunk. And the son says, okay, okay, dad. And he goes over and he finds an elephant and he cuts off the elephant's trunk and he put it in the trunk of the car. But when the dad went to go get in the car and pop the trunk to put the suitcase in, he sees a bloody elephant trunk in there. He says, son, what have you done? He says, I put the trunk in the trunk. The dad said, no, I didn't tell you to put the trunk in the trunk. I told you to put the trunk in the trunk. 
He said, what do you mean put the trunk in the trunk? That's what I did. I put the trunk in the trunk. He said, no, 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 no. I meant put the trunk in the trunk. What we had was a failure to communicate. What we had was something that two people using the same words with completely different meaning, chaos, ensued. And when it comes to this whole idea about sexuality, it's been lost in translation. So what are we really talking about when we say biblical sexuality? Is, is, this, is this the conversation that I've been kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop because I have my, my lifestyle or my theories, my heart, my family. Is this gonna still be a church anyone can come to when we have this conversation? Let me read a letter I got. I'm sorry for this late message, but I've been praying and I finally worked up the nerve to message you and ask certain information. This is on our Facebook page. Um, I've been hearing awesome things about your church. It's accepting, welcoming nature, and I've got very high hopes about making a visit. However, I, I wanna specifically ask if y'all were uh, LGBTQ friendly, not necessarily specific groups or anything. I'm just, I'm just, I'm, I'm just, I just don't wanna have to hide my orientation. I'm in a committed relationship. I'd love to bring my partner. Um, to be clear, we would be respectful and modest like any couple in church, but we just want a place where we wouldn't have to lie about our life. I was raised Catholic and very much believe and have never turned away, but as I said, I'm just looking for an accepting place. Now, if this isn't the case with your church, there are no hard feelings, and you have my word, I won't, quote, put you on blast. I would just appreciate an honest, open response. Um, <clears throat> let, me, let me read to you the, the response. Hey, and I call them by their name. Thanks for reaching out. We'd absolutely love for you and your friends or loved ones to join us at one of our Sunday morning services. 9 30, 11 15, we're laid back, so feel free to dress casual. Uh, we also have a VIP place in the lobby and also a VIP tent in the parking lot where you can meet a host and they'd be glad to help guide you on where to go, where to check in your kiddos if you're bringing any with you. Okay, dot, dot, dot. Longer answer. So when it comes to gossip, divorce, marriage, parenting, anger, sexuality, adultery, grace, mercy, humility, love, patience, you name it, Timber Creek Church holds a traditional conservative Christian view of the teachings of Jesus and view God's word as our final authority for everything in life. But just like it's always so hard to get a full understanding of someone's true heart through a text message or an email or an emoji, no doubt it is certainly exponentially more difficult for you to get the full grasp of our heart from this simple message regarding a topic, LGBTQ, that is so very personal to you and many others. It pains us to know that you and your loved ones have to work up the nerve to simply kick the tires on a church. That's why we truly do want to be a church anyone can come to while also staying true to our traditional orthodox Christian view of sexuality and the word of God as our final authority. So here's my suggestion to you. Take a leap. Check out a Sunday service. See how you and your partner feel. If you like what you experience, hey, let's reconnect and maybe set up a get-together over coffee with one of our pastors who you might be able to talk to. And if you don't like what you experience, let's still get coffee. We love making new friends. No doubt we could lean into the LGBTQ conversation today, but as I've even titled this message, a very limited conversation about sexuality, I'm not looking to talk about heterosexuality or homosexuality, sex outside the boundaries of marriage or healthy sex inside the boundaries of marriage. Any one of those could be a three week, 30 week. Some of you would like, can we have that series? You know, and I'm not talking about all the, you're talking about sex inside marriage. Like you just love to have that one. Um, 
But my goal is not to lean into particular uh, elements of scripture about one area of sexuality. I wanna give you a biblical framework of sexuality and maybe you're here and you're having sex outside of marriage. Or maybe you're here and you're married and your sex life is uh, lacking. Maybe you're here and you have a uh, same-sex attraction. Um, Maybe maybe you're here and that same-sex attraction is led into same-sex relationship. Um, We're here to just have a conversation about what the Bible talks about and see if we can get the heart of Jesus in this. So here's where, we'll start. here's where we're going to start. Let's start with sexuality in the perfect world. I don't mean the perfect world you create. I mean the perfect world God created. Because sexuality wasn't invented by man. Sex was invented by God himself, created, designed, architectured with Uh, in a perfect environment. This was not something that happened after the fall. When sin came into the world, sex began in perfection, the way God intended the world to function. So write some of these thoughts down. God, in the perfect world, is the architect. He builds the heavens and the earth, the fish in the sea, the sky uh, above us, the, the birds in that sky. He is the grand architect, the grand designer He knows exactly the blueprints and where everything goes and how everything is supposed to be weighted in order for that house that's built with that architecture, in order for it to stand firm. Sexuality in the perfect world, God builds creation around the prioritization of relationship. It was good when he made the water. It was good when he made the land. It was good when he made the fowl of the air and and, and the beasts of the field. It was good when he made man, but the first thing that wasn't good was when man was by himself. It's not good for man to be alone. And the prioritization of God walking unashamedly hand in hand with creation and humanity and man and woman being created to walk naked and unashamed in front, their innocence in front of God, it's the way God created relationship. This isn't in your notes, but the word cella, some of you, like me, thought it said Tesla for a second there. Sella. Sella simply means rib. And when God takes a rib from Adam and creates woman, male and female, when he takes the rib from, from, from man, it's the word sella. It's the only time in the Bible that the translators translate it to rib. Sela, used all throughout the rest of the scripture, is translated into a completely different piece than just rib. It's used so it can get lost in translation. Here's what Sela means. It simply means a sacred piece of a temple. Like an altar in a church. Like the stained glass tradition, but yet it just feels sacred. Maybe it's ashes of a loved one that sit in a special place in your home. Sela. The male and female body, God is showing us, are sacred pieces of architecture made in his image. He does not use that same kind of vernacular with animals, but today's culture wants to relegate you to the level of an animal that just is much more evolved than a deer. And some of you know deer are pretty smart. (laughs) You know, like, you're supposed to be above that. Sexuality in the perfect world, sex is God's way of whole self-donation within the boundaries of marriage. Marriage didn't become something that was in Egypt and in the wilderness and part of the uh, uh, civil law that God creates to keep Israel united. It is in the perfect world. It's before there's any fall, there's any destruction, there's any man-made anything. He designs male, female. He designs marriage in this perfect area. 
And here's what's interesting about marriage. Marriage is in the perfect beginning. And in the end, in Revelation, it's in the perfect ending that we're all leading up to an ultimate marriage with the bridegroom, that we're having a marriage supper of the lamb, that this imagery of marriage is designed in perfect creation and in perfect ending, an old heaven and earth that was perfect that got broken by sin and someday God makes it all right and we're journeying there around the tree of life and where Jesus is, that what makes heaven heaven is that Jesus is there, not the gold and not the crystal and not the pearly gates, it's the presence of Jesus and in that it's leading to a perfect marriage between him and us and in the middle Jesus, in the brokenness of our world, the very first miracle he does is not coincidental that he would show up to a wedding and say, I'm trying to bring things together, not from the outside in, but healing you from the inside out, ceremonial washing pots that they fill with water that were used to wash the outside of their lives to be holy before God. And when the wedding runs out of wine, he uses the ceremonial washing pot, takes the water, and it's not about you getting cleansed on the outside. He says, drink that, and they drink that wine. and say, whoo, that's the best. That's the best, whoo, you've turned out, whoo, H2O to Merlot. And they are cleansed. He's showing us in the moment of a marriage, this is what I'm doing here. Like I'm cleansing you from the inside out. Marriage isn't a man-made thing. Marriage is a God thing created in the perfect world between a man made a man and a woman made a woman. And that's the definition according to God's word. Now, whatever God creates, everything, everything God creates, Satan counterfeits. Everything. Satisfaction with God, Satan wants to give you satisfaction in a counterfeit way. Acceptance with God wants to give you acceptance in a different way. Identity made by God wants to get you to figure out your own identity. The very first words Satan said, did God really say, did God really mean it that, did God really, and, and you know what's interesting about the enemy here? The enemy says, did God really say you can't have this fruit? Notice that the enemy always goes toward what you can't have. Did God really say you must not eat that Come on, you can't be that way. You can't enjoy that. You can't taste that fruit. Did God really say you must not? If you back up in the story, God did say you must not, but let me tell you what he said first. He created all kinds of trees, all kinds of fruit, and he says, here are the first three words that God says to man. Are you ready? You are free to eat from any tree in this garden but you must not eat that tree. If you eat that tree, you're gonna die. And that tree of the knowledge of good and evil is, you eat that tree, it, it's saying to you and it's saying to me, you wanna be the end be all knowledge. You want to be the giver and the taker of life. You want to be the final authority. And so then the enemy, just like he does today, shows people, even in this culture, everything that God says you can't do versus the beauty of freedom and everything God says you can do and be and who you can become. So whatever God creates, Satan counterfeits. So if God is the architect, our culture saying, you're the architect, you design your own life, you live the way that you are meant to live, as long as you're not hurting anybody else, design the thing the way you want to design it. And so we design God of our own understanding. And while that may be a helpful piece of a 12-step program, the God of our own understanding is really our God. Because if you can understand God, God whose ways are bigger, stronger, larger, uh, infinite, if you can understand him, all of a sudden you have relegated God to the size of your own brain. And he's no longer God. If God has to fit in your understanding, you've just created God. You're the creator, you're the architect. God does not fit into your box. That's why it's so important we trust in the Lord with all our heart, lean not on our own understanding. 
So we're, we're the architects. We can design this way. Hey, instead of God building prioritization of relationship, what we do is we build culture around the prioritization of autonomous self. You can see this in culture. As long as I have control of myself, I don't care what you do. That's a lie. Because now, now it is actually autonomous self that is never questioned. So if you have an autonomous self that disagrees with my autonomous self, I will cancel you. If you do not assimilate into my Borg, <laughs> Star trek people, if you do not assimilate into my autonomous self, if you have a difference of opinion about me, you keep your opinion to yourself. As a, and, and, and as a matter of fact, you don't deserve that opinion because your opinion doesn't agree with my opinion. And so really, autonomous self, we're even fighting against the very thing we've tried to create. Everybody's trying to find a final authority. And so what we've done is autonomous self is the final authority. And when autonomous self is the final authority, everybody is a final authority, meaning nobody's a final authority, meaning the only way to actually get final authority is if I cancel you out and stand on my final authority. As long as autonomous self is number one, you, you can't be the same. I have to still be elevated up in my own autonomous the male and female body are sacred pieces of architecture. In our culture now, male and female body are subject to change according to my preferred image. Verses made in his image, that being the starting point, the image becomes what I see and what I want. And this has, goes way beyond sexuality, everybody. Like, the enemy wants to get you at your identity, at the very core of who you are. And there are people that you love, some of you, that there's a wrestling between the body and the spirit and the soul of their own humanity. And inside their body, their body says, this is the way to live. The body, I've created you in my image, male or female, but inside, wrestling with, but the way I the way I feel. And a callous church would say, well, you need to reject that. Yet the same people that would say, you need to reject that, will look in the mirror and say, you're worthless. You're not, you're not questioning your own identity as far as biology, but you are questioning your identity and whether God says you are worthy or not. Be careful the speck and the log. We all, we all have identity issues. Some of them drill very, very deep. Sex is our way of self-gratification within the boundaries of consent versus self-donation within the boundaries of marriage. And we still, look, look at this, we still value boundaries, but if those boundaries don't fall in line with my own autonomous self, then I'm gonna push those boundaries away. Boundaries are good if I think they're good, but if God says they're good, who's really to say? As long as you can define your boundaries, nobody else should be able to define your boundaries, right? And this is the power, this is the power of sex out of control because it's a beautiful thing. Here's another thing the church got wrong. <laughs> you may not get anything out of this. I'm gonna get a lot off my chest today. I'm just going, I'm up here already, okay? Might as well let it rip. <laughs> Thank you. So, 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 so here's, here's, here's the challenge. Like, we, we, we want to define everything with our own terms. And then we want God to come in and, and be a part of the stuff we need him for, but then all the other stuff we say, mm, I, thanks God, I'm gonna put that one on pause. My question for us is, how often are we gonna disagree with God? On what, on what elements of life in this culture are you gonna agree with God and then say, mm, God, I don't know if I wanna agree with you on that. And that's the conversation we need to have. Do you know why sex is so powerful? The ch Christian church got it wrong. For a long time, long time, we just didn't talk about it because the, the, the sermon was sex is bad, you know. 
You can only have sex unless you pray first. <laughs> and some of you, you still do that. You're like, thank you, Jesus, <laughs> you know. <laughs> thank you, God. <laughs> All of a sudden, we like, like sex is bad. We don't talk about it. It's this, it's this icky thing. And God meant sex to be an awesome thing. Unfortunately, though, we've perverted it not to just be a bad thing, but then sex becomes the God. Sex is God. It has the final authority of our life. Whatever we feel and whatever we think, sex is God because it has the final say. My hormones are going to be God in my life. My emotions and you say, yeah, but if you push that down, you're trying to repress things. And so what we want is an absolute free sex culture because you can't repress those things. Those are natural and those are normal. And actually, it's not about repression. It's about control. It's about, it's about God honoring boundaries. Let me give you an example. People, the same people that will say, you're, that's repressive. That's regressive. That's pushing things down. No, it's a boundary. The same way with those same people would also say, hey, you get angry too easy. You need anger management. Well, anger is an emotion as well. And anger out of boundaries can become destructive. Rivers, you've seen a tsunami. Water out of boundaries. It can be living water and it can be destructive. Sex has boundaries and that doesn't make it bad and it doesn't make it repressive. It makes it beautiful. It makes it amazing in the perfect world God created. But you and I don't live in the perfect world. So how, how do we engage proper, perfect world sexuality and godliness in a broken world? Well, I'll tell you how we try. We just try to make it the way we want it to be. And this isn't just in sex. This is in everything. But I will say that Jesus shows up in the broken world and he comes back to the created order to give us guidance for the moral order. The Apostle Paul goes back to the created order to give us guidance for the moral order. Brokenness, sinful culture is not the guidance, not the parameters for a, for a true healthy sexuality. God's created order, Jesus brings it available to us. The Pharisees come and say, hey, 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 hey. Uh, Moses said we could divorce our wives. Moses, Moses said we could divorce our wives. What say ye? Jesus says, that was never intended to be like the deal. And, and this is another argument in our culture. Why is the church speaking against like same-sex marriage when they can't even keep their own marriages intact? And Jesus is like, this conversation isn't about divorce. And he goes back to the created order. The intention is, God creates male and female, puts them together, and whatever I make as one, you can't separate. Those of you that have been through a divorce, you know how hard that is. Just because the paper says you're separated, just because the paper says it's disconnected, there's still a whole lot of oneness in that. It's really hard to unone what God has oned because there's family and relationships and leading your family this way and leading the family the ex-spouse says the way. And, and it's, it's complicated, isn't it? Jesus meets in all of that and says, oh, you know when, you know when people, when Jesus says, uh, I hate divorce, he doesn't hate divorced people. He hates what divorce does to people because it's just like, oh, he knows how hard it is. He knows how tough that is, how ugly it can be. Jesus shows up and not only gives us a clarity of the created order, but he also shows us, so like if you're a Christian, Jesus shows us how to engage controversial conversations. Jesus shows us how to, like how do you now navigate that my child is uh, asking me to come to their wedding and, and, it's, and it's a same sex wedding. And how do I navigate that? And um, you know, or I want to. I want to. I want to have a foot on grace and a foot on truth. My child is saying, "I was born a girl. I want to be a guy." How do you How do you navigate that? I can tell you this: the church has really navigated it, like really crappy. Um, 
because either it's been all truth and no grace or all grace and no truth, and we gotta come back to our cues from Jesus. How about instead of getting a cue from Pastor Jeremy, or how about instead of getting a cue from CNN or Fox, how about we come back to the word of God and the name above every name, what a beautiful name it is, Jesus, who shows us how to navigate an issue, even when it has to do with sexuality that is outside his perfect design. That's what the rest of this message is about. So how does Jesus address sexuality in our broken world? We go to a story in the book of John, and it is the longest story recorded in the Gospels. Now hear this. Jesus has the longest conversation with someone who's actually in sexual sin. Jesus is having a conversation with someone whose their identity has been wrapped up in relationship over wrapped up in where he's headed and where he wants us to head. So let's just take a look at this and see how Jesus approaches a conversation. John 4, Jesus left Judea and he returned to Galilee. He, everybody say it, he had to go through where? On the way. He had to go through Samaria on the way. Guess what? Uh-uh, not geographically. This isn't a geographic issue like you got to, if you're gonna take 59 to Houston, you got to get through Dieball and the speed traps in order to get, in order to get to, you know. It's not like you had to go on 59 to Houston through Dieball. No, 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 you could go around it, no problem. As a matter of fact, Jews were used to going around Samaria because there was unbelievable. Samaritans were political and religious rivals. They were political and religious rivals. They voted for other people. They had a different set of beliefs. They had a different set of, of opinions and emotions and affections. And the Jews saw the Samaritans as less than because they had some of their God and some of their Jewish customs, but then they mixed in all this other stuff and there was unbelievable racism and prejudice against Samaritans. As a matter of fact, in John 7, the Pharisees are, are getting after Jesus, the biblical, like the religious people. They're getting after Jesus, and he says, I've been trying to tell you the, the truth. You just won't hear the truth. And you know what they say to him? They, they dog him. They, they say, yo mama, but they say it in a very biblical way. They say it like this, you Samaritan devil, you're demon-possessed. It's not enough that they call him demon-possessed, and it's not enough that they call him a devil. They say, you Samaritan devil. And everybody's like, ooh, did you hear what they called Jesus? Yeah, devil. No, they called him a Samaritan devil. Like this was the culture of the day, so they would go around Samaria. They had nothing to do with the people that had a different political view and a different religious view. Didn't even want to have a conversation unless it was to tell them how stupid they were and how lost they were. Which I think, if you add up all of your conversations, the ones that are debates that always about how bad they stink and how right you are, I'm sure that 98% of those end really well. That was sarcasm. I wanna show you how Jesus addresses culture. He had to go, not because... Not because it was a geographical reality, it was because it was a missional reality. He did not have to go to Samaria because he was going somewhere else. He had to go to Samaria because, because Galilee wasn't his destination. His real destination was the heart of a woman. His real destination was to come to seek and save that Number one, Jesus loves all people personally, regardless of their sin. Jesus loves all people personally. So this can be the challenge. I know God loves me, and I, and I feel, and I believe with all my heart that he created me this way, or God, God loves me and he understands my needs, 
So whether it be a same-sex thing or a, I haven't gotten married yet, but I want to kind of test drive the stuff before we lock in forever. Jesus loves everybody personally, regardless of their sin. You're right. He does. And he shows it to the Samaritan woman. And he's willing to walk into her life and have the longest conversation recorded in biblical in the biblical gospels. But this element of sin is a real deal. What, what is sin? Is sin the act? Sin is not the act you commit, everybody. It's the authority you reject. That's what sin is. Sin missing the mark when, a, when an arrow is going to the bullseye and it misses, that, that arrow is sinning. So what is sinning? Hitting the bullseye of, your, of things that are counter-cultural or counter-God? No. It's when we say, I want to be the final authority. It's not in your notes, but you can write it down this way. Choosing my way over God's way in any way is sin. Choosing my way over God's way in any way, regardless of what the way of the culture is, that's missing the mark of God's intended design as the architect of your so Jesus had to go to Samaria. And eventually, so this was like, this, t- this was an investment of his time. This was, this was not a hop, a skip, and a jump because it made sense to him to spend his time. It took some focus. It took, in the middle of being tired, he was willing. Eventually, he got to the place where he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar near the field that Jacob gave to his son, Joseph. This is a biblical place. Let me also show you, Jesus loves in close proximity. Love you. Love you from over there. Do you know it's really hard to dislike people up close? People that you don't know, the closer you get to them, and then you see their scars, and you see their wounds, and you see their struggles, and you see, and you see them as Jesus sees. It's hard to dislike people up close. And you know, you, you don't even have to be like them, but you do have to like them, <laughs> Christ followers. Anybody that has a different view or a different life than you. You don't have to be like them, but you, if you want to be like Jesus, you enter their world. You sit at their well. It's like this is her, this is the Samaritan Starbucks. Jacob's well is the biblical equivalent of Starbucks, just a lot cheaper. Jesus loves in close proximity. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, look at this, I'm just, I'm just showing you a very, a very popular passage, but I'm hoping to maybe show you some things that are patterns in Jesus. He was tired from the long walk. Like he was exhausted. Jesus is showing his humanity here. He doesn't walk in perfection. He is perfect, but he doesn't walk in a shroud of I'm perfect. He actually is exhausted, and he's walked a long way, and he sat wearily, not with confidence. Hey, come here, Samaritan woman. I'm gonna give you a three-point sermon, tell you how to live. He shows that he's willing to meet us and understand us, and be weary too. He sat beside the well about noontime. Noontime is not even the time to go get water. The time for the ladies to go get the water in that culture was early in the morning or late at night, not in the middle of the day. That's what a waste because if you go in the morning, you got water all day long. If you go in the evening, you got water all night long. But in the middle, you're wasting your day. Could it be that this Samaritan woman wanted to avoid the normal crowd because of maybe some of the lifestyle choices she had engaged, some of the hurts that her life had experienced. We don't know. But Jesus met her right where she was. Now soon, a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, I know what you did last night. Mm-hmm. I can't even repeat it because I'm Jesus. I know where those hands have been. Those same hands, he says, please, 
you give me a drink? Would you give me a drink? The woman was surprised. She was surprised. For Jews refuse to have anything to do with Samaritans. I think you would be very surprised that when you take the heart and the hands and the feet of Jesus and you love people, I think you'd be surprised about how many people that you feel are closed that the door cracks open. The door just cracks open. Because they're already assuming that you're just there to settle a debate. Or push on to some, them onto something. Because we're all protecting our autonomous selves. She said to Jesus, whoa, 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 whoa. You're, you're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Jesus replied, because I'm about ready to give you a three-point sermon. I'm about, I'm about ready to have a conversation, and I'm, just, I'm, I'm earning my trust to close the deal. I'm, I'm complimenting your shoes when you walk into the sales area. I'm complimenting you so I can let down your guard so I can, get, I can sell something. Jesus goes right beyond the drink, and here's what he says. Listen to the heart of Jesus. If you only knew the gift God had for you and who you're speaking to, you'd actually ask me, and I would give you living water. If you only knew the gift that you don't even know is available to you. Number three, Jesus' words are laced with grace first. He has no conversation right up front about, hey, look, I, I, if you'll get this right and that right, then I'll offer you some living water. He says, oh, if you only knew what I provide, I, th I think you'd be thirsty for it. His conversation is laced with grace first. Are our conversations about the rapid onset transgender dysphoria laced with grace first? Set aside the logic. Set aside the logic. A man whose 480th place in men swimming is now first place in female swimming that's not logical. It would be like LeBron James tomorrow saying, I feel like a woman. And you put him in the WNBA and he scores 497 points a game. <laughs> You'd say, well, but it's all based on how he feels. That's, lo that's not logic. But I want to tell you, logic doesn't win the heart. It's love, not logic, that wins the heart. But love without logic is like grace without truth. Love without, love without conversation, love without listening is not really love. I love you, but you don't listen to me. Love without listening is not really love. Jesus' words are laced with grace first. Sir, here, here's her response to the living water. Sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket. Look at how she's looking for the physical extremities to quench her physical thirst. You don't have a rope or a bucket, and this well is very deep. Where would you get, where'd you go get this living water? She doubles down. Besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? How, how could you even say you got better water? You think you're better than Jacob? How can you offer better water than Jacob and his sons and his animals enjoyed? I mean, and God, how could God's way be better than my way? Don't you see, God, I've got it figured out with all my ropes and my buckets and my ancestors and my Facebook groups. I mean, 
If it was good enough for Jacob's animals, I, I think it's good enough for me. Who are you to say, Jesus, that you've got something better for me? Look what she does that we do even in 2022. We habitually question his ability to quench our deepest thirsts. We habitually question whether he's powerful enough and living water enough that if we got a thirst for acceptance, that if, as long as I find that he is all I need and he is who says I'm a sheep, he's who says I'm a child of God. But no, I've got to have, I'm gonna fight tooth and nail and I'm never gonna get it from my earthly father because he doesn't get it and he doesn't understand it and he's broken and I am waiting and waiting and waiting for him to finally say it and admit it and he never will and... I just want the ropes and the buckets from here. Jesus says, I've got it for you. And you're, you're actually trying to put a rope and a bucket down a well that is temporary. From acceptance to safety to love to intimacy to significance to marriage and family to success. Like, as long as I get married, and even the apostle Paul says, hey, if you're single, it's okay, stay single. In that culture, marriage was everything. If you weren't a married woman in that culture, you were either a widow or a prostitute, and none, neither one of them were, were, did well in life. And Paul's saying, if you don't get married, it's not about getting married. If you get married, okay, but like, don't hang on to it too tightly. Like, that's your, all your identity. Be with Jesus. Let it be first. Jesus responds, hey, anyone who drinks this water that I'm talking about, not that I'm talking about, but what you're talking about, the Jacob's well thing, they'll soon become thirsty again. And that's the thing with sexual gratification. Whether it's in the context of marriage or not, it, it's a momentary thing when it comes to the act but it's a godly design thing when it comes to identity. And you drink this water, you're gonna become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. And many times we look for sexual gratification as a way out here to find acceptance and vulnerability and love so we stand naked in front of our partner and here's the problem with just giving sex to anybody outside the boundaries of marriage. Here's the problem. Sex is self-donation, whole self-donation. And if you begin to give whole self-donation without giving emotional whole self-donation, relational whole self-donation, financial whole self-donation, what it does is it damages your God-designed commitment apparatus. The same way a scuba diver has breathing apparatus, there's a commitment apparatus God built in us through sexual intimacy. And it damages that. God can heal anything, but it can become damaged. Now, sir, whoa, if you're saying what I think you're saying, give me some of that Fiji water. Give me some of that Dasani then I'll never be able to be thirsty again and I won't have to come here to get water. Can I say that there's a trunk in the trunk situation going on here? Jesus is saying, put the trunk in the trunk. She's like, I've, I've been coming here to put the trunk in the trunk. I don't mean put that trunk in the trunk, I mean put the trunk in the trunk. I'm talking about living water. I'm talking about water too because I am tired of having to walk out here. No, 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 no. I don't mean water from the outside of this well, I mean water from the inside, a living well, me in you flowing forth. That's what I'm talking about. I don't know if I ever know what you're talking about. Now look, this is where Jesus begins to turn the conversation. Jesus' love is inextricably linked to both grace and truth. And this is hard for us Christians that want to try and love people because the, maybe there's been a, a set of Christians and, and, a, and a, a part of the church that's been very, very loud that wants to be all truth and no grace I believe that there's equal danger in being a church that's all grace without truth. Live however you want, Jesus will figure it out in the end. And Jesus doesn't, doesn't extrapolate grace and truth. He links them together, but he does it in an environment of love. So here's what Jesus says. Go get your husband. 
She's like, I'd love to drink this water. So what he's saying is, I've got it. I've got the water. It's available to you. Go get your husband. Go get your husband. She goes, I don't have a husband, okay? I don't have a husband. And here's where Jesus dives into truth. You're right. You don't have a husband, for you've had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man you're living with. Side note, friends, side note, living together without being married may be economically safe, but it's not biblically right. Even Jesus recognizes, well, we're married in God's eyes. Not really. According to this, she actually had five husbands she went through the process with, but this one, she's like, I'm done with that whole marriage thing. Can you see her thirst is not about a physical thirst? You don't go through five marriages without being thirsty for some kind of significance and acceptance and love and need. And he's saying, you, you are thirsty. <laughs> you are thirsty. <laughs> All those pictures you'd be fo- posting on Instagram, I know you're thirsty, that's how you caught this guy right here. He's like, like? <laughs> he, this guy slid into your DMs. He's saying, I'm talking to you about thirst and I want to give you thirst, but I also, I also wanna talk about the reality that you're living in. Now here's what she says. You certainly spoke the truth, you must be a prophet. She's like, dang, Gina, like you know what you're talking about. You know what you're talking about. And here's what I think, if you and I, like all of a sudden it's like, oh, you didn't mean trunk in a trunk. You're meaning trunk in a trunk. And she says, I think she could have said in this moment, why would you bring that up? But she doesn't bring it up. As a matter of fact, she does what you and I like to do. She skirts the issue. Here's what she does. She gets all spiritual. She gets all religious. Watch the very next thing she says. Not like, why would you talk to me about my relationships and my husband? She says, you know, hey, tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship while we Samaritans claim it is here at Mount Gerizim where our ancestors worship? All of a sudden, it gets back to a bunch of religious bull junk. All of a sudden, it gets back to like, well, how, how, what kind of denomination are you? Well, well, I've heard it say, you insist this and I insist that. Well, hey, wait, wait, wait how'd you, who'd you vote for? But we do that. We skirt over Jesus wanting to get to the heart of the issue. <laughs> and Jesus explains, like, look, we, side, he doesn't say, shut up and listen to me, woman. I'm trying to tell you something here. Drink the water. Like, he says, honestly, he says, honestly, the Father's looking for those who will worship him this way in spirit and in truth. She's wanting to know where to worship and that's my spirit, that's where do I worship. He's saying, what I'm trying to show you is it don't matter where your church is. What matters is will you actually receive the truth because worship is not just in your activity and not just in your emotion and not just in your intention, but worship is actually connected, inextricably linked to not just how you feel good in a worship service, But worshiping God is all about saying, God, I worship you so much, I'm not just gonna sing this fun song that came out by Maverick City, I'm gonna live your truth. I'm gonna live your truth, that's worship. The woman ends up saying, well, I mean, I don't know if I agree with you or you agree with me, but I do know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ, and when he comes, he'll explain everything to us. He'll explain everything. You don't have all the answers, and I don't have all the answers. Eventually, we'll have the answers, but like right now, my truth is is my truth. Your truth is your truth, and Jesus says, I'm the Messiah. (laughs) And she goes, how do I know, huh? He goes, I know. I'm the Messiah. I'm it. Just then, in the middle of a beautiful moment, the disciples came back, and they were shocked to find him talking to a woman. Cody, come to the piano. I got to wrap up. But none of them had the nerve to ask. Look, the disciples come back. They had went to go to get Chick-fil-A. They forgot it was Sunday, and they were closed. 
And they come back and they're shocked to find him talking to a woman, but none of them had the nerve to say, what in the world do you want with her? Why are you talking to her? The disciples, the Christ followers. Number five, even the closest followers of Jesus missed it. They missed what was going on in this moment. And instead of the disciples looking at Jesus and seeing people the way Jesus saw people and being completely grace but also completely truth and knowing that really getting to Jesus, you can't just understand the grace but you've got to invite the truth to change you, to, 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 to mold you. You are all things new but then you choose his conviction and his character and his conduct and you begin walking with Jesus daily, not in perfection but in his perfection. You say, I don't got all the answers, but I'm going to try it. Instead of, instead of the disciples saying, who's your new friend, Jesus? Who's your new friend? They said, why is he talking to her? Well, they kind of showed up. The conversation ends. And that woman Something had started in her. It had not been finished. But it had started. Something started in her. Because she was in such a hurry. The woman left her water jar. The whole goal that she thought that she was trying to put trunk in a trunk. But instead there was water in her well. Instead of water from the well. She ran back to the village telling everybody, maybe even the same people she was trying to avoid at the morning and night. She says, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Well, he didn't tell her everything. But he did talk to her about the most important things. There was a deep longing thirst in her life that she was trying to quench. He said, oh, if only you knew. I'm not here to slap you, woman. I'm here to give you living water. But here's what's interesting. Here's what she says. The woman goes and tells everybody, could he possibly be the Messiah? She didn't even know if she knew it yet. She didn't even know she knew. She didn't even know she had faith yet. But there was something about a conversation with someone who would show her grace and truth and put her in a position to just kind of start thinking about it. She had a question. Here's your question today. Have I had an honest conversation with Jesus about my deepest thirsts. From sexuality to significance, he's not trying to hurry you. The longest conversation in the Bible that Jesus has, he's willing to talk with you and talk with you and talk with you. He didn't stop her before she left. She said, oh, wait, 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 woman. Every knee bowed, every tongue confessed. Would you close your eyes and stay where you are? Jesus knew what she needed. When's the last time you, no matter what you're going through, no matter what your deepest thirst is, have you had an honest conversation with it, with Jesus? God, I am so tied to my job. I am so tied to my stuff. I am so tied to the marriage being exactly what I thought. I'm so tied to my kids. They're, they're the God. Family's the God. Marriage is the God. Significance is the God. Paycheck is the God. Stuff is the God. My emotions are the God. My feelings are the God. My identity is the God versus created by God. Here's another question to ponder. If Jesus is who he says he is, can he be trusted with my deepest thirsts? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. And okay, Let me say something to you. It says he'll make your path straight. 
doesn't say, and he will make you straight. But if you'll invite him into a conversation, he'll direct your paths and quench your deepest thirsts. Are there any jars I need to leave behind today? I'm going to walk away and you're going to fill up your jar with whatever water you think you need that's going to fulfill all your requests and all your needs. Can I just invite you? Jesus, when it comes to the sexuality jar, when it comes to the significance jar, when it comes to the identity jar, when it comes to the family jar, could you, could you be who you say you are? He will invite you into a conversation. And maybe it needs to start today. Would you close your eyes with me? Let's pray. There may be some of you listening or watching and you may be offended because you felt like I didn't say enough. Or maybe you're offended because you thought I said too much. Can I invite you to just step away from that and just say, Jesus, would you come find me wherever I am? Maybe you're a Christ follower and you've never really had an open conversation because you didn't even know what to say with someone you love. Maybe your prayer would just be, Jesus, Show me how to love like you love, but also model truth like you model truth. I want to be like you in this. There may be some of you and your deepest thirst has to do with sexuality. And it's a complicated, it's a complicated situation. I want you to know I love you and I'm so honored to be your pastor and I want to continue to pastor you. I also want to tell you the jars of this world are temporary. They crack and they leak and they, they burn up. Jesus is eternal. Lean into him. For some of you, the, the deepest thirst comes back to you've never asked Jesus to be your living water that you'd like to start today. He offers the living water. He talks to the truth, but he doesn't expect the Samaritan woman to clean herself up. He does that work. So no matter where you are in life, whether you're following God's design for your life or not, it starts with your heart. And you'd say, Jesus, I give you my heart today. I want to be more like you, and I want to find my fulfillment in you. Whatever that looks like, Lord, I'm, I'm ready to at least have a conversation with you about it. And I would say, friends, that Jesus says to you, come. Those that are thirsty, come. And I will give them living water. We receive that today. Quench our thirsts today, Jesus. We ask it in the strong name of Jesus. Everybody said amen.